It's great to be with you all again this evening and to continue now what we started last week. So if you weren't here last week, we began a new series in the book of Ephesians, this ancient letter written from Paul, most likely to a bunch of churches in Western Asia Minor about 2,000 years ago, called The Brave New World. And we talked about the fact that we've, got, we've all got a vision of the brave new world, of what a better world would be. But that Paul, in this letter, begins to unpack for us this audacious claim that in Jesus, God began and initiated a far better world than any of our visions of a better world could ever imagine. And that he begins to unpack that. And one of the central things uh, we said last week is that every claim for a better world has a central actor which in this case is God, in a central action. And so from that little greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we looked at the central action of this vision that Paul lays out in Ephesians, being a generous, giving God who blesses his people, who blesses the world. So that thought then begins the, the, the eruption of Paul in this next little section of Ephesians, which is a 202-word sentence in the original language, a kind of literally an eruption, a run-on sentence that would never make it through grammar school, uh, that is overflowing with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it begins. A eulogy that is praising the goodness and the greatness of God. So here's, we're going to look at the first Seven or eight verses up to, up to verse 10 tonight. And here are a couple of questions as we get to jump into this together. The first question is, can you really believe that God is a God, that the center of this vision of a great world is a God who blesses in the midst of a world where there's so much pain, suffering, and sorrow? And I was having a conversation with somebody recently who was very honest and said to me, you know, for the last seven or eight years of my life, I've had a really... I've had some questions, and the questions have really arisen out of the fact that the more I think about the world as we know it, the more I realize that most people's lives are pretty miserable. And we live in a fairly privileged country, obviously. We are more blessed than any have ever been blessed in a material, physical sense than ever before. But to be fair, where most of the world's population lives on less than, uh, like two billion people live on less than a few dollars a day, that observation isn't wrong and most people even uh, people who we look up to and think oh they have it made they've got everything would tell you that they don't that a lot of life is filled with sorrow and heartache and so the question you know instead of just saying oh this is amazing we've got to bring it back down to earth to our lives and to the world that we live in and that we experience and say is it does it make any sense to say that at the heart of this brave new world is a God who blesses now to be fair Um, Paul most likely was writing, penning this letter in a prison cell in Rome. So hopefully that at least begins to address some of that question. And he was writing it to people in Western Asia Minor who probably were, were not really well off. If Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians gives us any indication. Who didn't have great status or wealth. And who were probably suffering in ways that we might not even really be able to comprehend. And yet he still writes this. So that's one question that we have to, I want you, I want you to, to wrestle with and say, okay, I, I get it. I'm not going to turn a blind eye to reality and just live in the clouds. But can we still hold to this identity of a God who blesses? The second question I want to I say is much more personal. 
Uh, it's just this. When is the last time in your life that you feel that you have erupted in praise and worship of God? That's a much harder question in some ways because it hits a lot closer to home. When's the last time that you thought about the, the riches of what we celebrate here week after week? The riches of all that God has done for us in Jesus. And that that's actually penetrated your heart. You've got to get the picture of Paul in the prison cell writing to these churches in Western Asia Minor and, and, West, Western Asia Minor and just thinking as he starts the letter. He's dictating the letter most likely. And he just, he just gets going. And that's why the sentence is so long because he can't stop. Have you had that experience? Now, not to, not to say that it, it looks a certain way. It might be for some of you that it's, that it's a very quiet and meditative overflow. But have you had that kind of overflow? I mentioned some idols of Boston last week. Well, Boston, obviously, one of them is, is education or knowledge. And the, the dominant mode in the, in the world of education is to withhold your commitment until such time as you've understood everything perfectly. It's the, it's the position of the, of the academy, scrutiny, doubt, until you can prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. And what that does is it keeps us at arm's length from these things. And I, I, I just wonder, does that describe anybody here where you, you're kind of interacting with God in some way, but you're really pushing him at a distance, scrutinizing, questioning not in a way that's faith-seeking understanding, but in a way that says, look, I'm in, the, I'm in the judgment seat here, and until I get a clear picture, I'm not going to come around. So that's just a personal thing to keep in mind. When Paul writes this sentence to those churches, he is seeking, he's deeply seeking to evoke a cognitive and an emotional response in the hearts of those who receive this letter. I hope, as we look at it, that God, through Paul, will do the same in us. So here's the overarching claim. So how does he evoke this response? He gives a, an overarching claim in verse 3, and then he substantiates that claim with three particulars in the next seven verses. And here's the overarching claim, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what do we say about this? This is, a, this is, like, you can't say anything more. You can't really fit any more information or blessing into a sentence like this. He's blessed us. That's how it begins. With every spiritual blessing. Now, every spiritual blessing means the blessings in the realm of the life in the spirit. The life of God. The power of God. The love of God. The forgiveness of God. The purpose of God. Being poured out upon you. There is no part of the life of God in the spirit that he has not given to us, to you. In the heavenly places. What do we make of that? In Ephesians we see both there are things in heaven and things on earth. Now heaven isn't just the place where God is. But there are, there are powers and authorities and rulers. These spiritual forces at work in the heavenly realms. And yet at the highest of the highest of the heavenly realms. There is a ruler, a king. Jesus. As he'll go on to at the end of this chapter. And by his blessing us through the spirit, we have been united with that highest heavenly realm where there is no thwarting, no diminishing of the will of God. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, man, I wish God would have blessed me more in the physical realm. I wish I had more of this or more of that. And sometimes it's true that the Christian gospel gets turned into a kind of 
well, you're going to get what you need and you're going to get what you want and you're going to get more of it because you come to God and you start to listen to Him. Now, I don't want to pit, pitch uh, or put these things off against one another. The spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms are not disconnected or necessarily meant to contrast with the physical blessings. And as we look next week, he talks about our inheritance, which is nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth, it, which is physical. But the inheritance now, the, the, the blessings now are often more the ruggedness of the cross, the heartaches and the trials that paradoxically become the means by which we know more of the fullness of God himself. And if we start to complain and yell and scream at God that we haven't gotten this or that or the other thing in the physical realm, it says something that we haven't yet really understood, the fullness of his blessing for us in the spiritual realm. Now, I want to qualify that and just say, obviously, there are aches and pains and heartaches and needs for us in the physical realm. God cares about those things. We long to be a community that works to see healing and blessing in those areas of people's lives because we believe in a God who cares about your whole life and person. But in this case, the comprehensive scope of this opening, launching statement is that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, the life of God by the Spirit in every way imaginable. And the last thing he says in this opening claim is it's all in the Messiah, in Christ. That you have these blessings because of your union with and your incorporation into the Messiah, the true King, Jesus himself. That's the sphere in which these blessings are poured out. And they pour upon you because you're united with him by faith. So that's the opening kickoff for this eruption of praise. And then he substantiates it with three particular blessings. Verses 4 through 6 comes next. So we're thinking, great, right? At this point, great. God is blessing us with every spiritual blessing. And here we go. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Quoting Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. Paul begins to unveil these blessings. But right when we hear these words about election, chosen, predestined, chosen, marked out beforehand, it starts to ring off some kinds of dissonances and so on. I want to address those in just a second. Let's just look first. What does Paul say? Here's what he says. In eternity past, before the foundations of the world, That God, according to his will, chose us, marked us out beforehand in the Messiah to be his sons and daughters in Jesus. And let me say something about this. And we've got to really tread carefully here. So I I want you to walk with me through this. There's a corporate dimension to this chosenness, right? Paul is not thinking as as a 17th century Calvinist. He's thinking as a first century Jew who has in his mind the chosen people of Israel called my son in Exodus chapter 4. And he's saying in a radically shifted way that this election of the people of God which was upon Israel is now 
culminated and fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus, the true representative of Israel, and all of those who have been grafted into him by faith. So there's a corporate dimension to this that needs to be upheld, but there's also an individual dimension that I would like to say cannot be denied here. In that the benefits of this text that are applied are not applied to a corporate entity, but they're applied to individuals. Adoption. You become a daughter of God. You become a son of God. You become one of his family. Redemption. Forgiveness of sins, as we'll look at it in a moment. You receive these things in an individual sense. Now, why do we have such a wrestling problem with this? And, and here's one of the reasons why sometimes this doesn't come as like erupting to praise. It just leads us to more questions and confusion. But here, here's something I would throw out to you. One of the reasons is because we take this teaching about election and we rip it out of its native soil in the biblical narrative and text. And then this is what we start to do. We subject it to philosophical scrutiny. And it begins to offend our sense of freedom. Or we subject it to theological rigidity. And it begins to offend our sense of justice. Why these people and why not those people? And we start to press that under a rigid grid. And it leads our minds to kind of go nuts a little bit. Here's the the deal. When we hear about this thing called election, what we typically do, at least in our our context, is we demand an explanation. We say this is a phenomenon that demands an explanation. But here's the thing. Scripture never gives us an explanation. All we get here from Paul is humble celebration. Humble celebration. I take comfort from these words from John Stott, written in 1979 in his commentary on Ephesians. He says this, he says, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries, of which I am not one, to be clear. This teaching, which causes us stumbling, is a mystery to be approached, to be laid before, to to walk up to in awe in front of. Not a problem to be explained. It runs through the entire story of God. It starts with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. I called Abraham to be my child, my son, then moves to Israel, then moves to the Messiah, then moves to all of those who've been gathered into the Messiah. It runs through every aspect, every layer of the New Testament text. So if you're sitting here thinking, well, Mark, this is just one of Paul's things. You know, this is Paul. I'm not a Paul person. But actually, Peter talks about the elect exiles who've been scattered. And Jesus, what does he say? You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. John 15 16. The brave new world that Paul is beginning to unpack here, we learn very quickly as 21st century modern Americans or people living in America, we learn very quickly that it's not a world that we can fully grasp or understand cognitively. Which is tough for us in Boston. Instead of 
explanation, we get humble celebration. The Anglican Church has the 39 Articles of Religion written in 1571. And Article 17 deals with this idea of election. And it says that this teaching is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. But then warns that when this teaching is paraded in front of those who don't yet know Jesus, that it becomes the most dangerous downfall, which can plunge us into desperation, wickedness, and perilous living. There's some wisdom in those words in dealing with a mystery like this. The celebration is simply this. Let's imagine for just a moment that you woke up tomorrow morning and you looked on your driver's license and your last name was not what your last name is now, but it was Gates. Right? Bill and Melinda decided overnight that they wanted to make you their own son or daughter. Now, let's just keep running with the thought experiment and say, would you be happy or would you be sad? Now, granted, you'd probably be both, but there'd be a sense in which you'd be elated because you had just been brought into the largest fortune ever existing on earth in a human sense. And suddenly a world of possibilities and opportunities would be open to you that had never been opened before. The celebration of this teaching of Paul's here is that you've been brought out of a position of relative obscurity and hopelessness and difficulty and placed into the family of the God who owns every last penny that Bill Gates has in his account. And then some. And you've been brought right into his family and made his own and called his son and called his daughter and washed over with this kind of lavish blessing. And now you have access to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, as Paul will say later in Ephesians 2. And you have the opportunity to benefit from him and to draw from his resources and to live in his light and his blessing. It's a, it's a reason to celebrate with great joy. But the reason that it's a humble celebration is because of this precise reason, as Paul goes on to say in verse 6, that God did all of this to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He did this not because you deserved it, not because you'd done anything to earn it, but one of the key points of this teaching, this mystery about election, is that you didn't do anything. And he chose you. Which means that you can be 100% secure in his love for you. Because it's not built on any attribute in you. It's not built on anything that's native to you. It's built on the good pleasure of his will. That leads us to a place of humility. And dependency and trust. And also in terms of the humility of this teaching is the fact that God doesn't choose you just to make you feel good. He chooses you to employ you in his purposes for the whole world. Meaning that God wants to work through you as his child. To spread his light and his glory and his gospel to the rest of the city, to your neighborhood, to your workplace. And he wants to do that through you as those who are, as he says in verse 4, called to be holy and blameless. Man, that's a humbling reality. To realize that your life, whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're living into right now, your life has a meaning that goes far beyond anything that you are ever capable of, uh, uh, capable of in your own 
resources to shine and to be a light for God throughout the world, throughout your sphere. Humble celebration. Now, let me say to those of you who are here tonight and you're not yet following Jesus and you're you're investigating, you're thinking about this. Let me say one thing that, that we cannot do in hearing about this mysterious teaching about election is we can't say, well, you know what? I'm not one of those. And therefore, it just doesn't matter. I'm just going to reject this whole thing. That's never the way this teaching is presented or used, biblically speaking. And it shouldn't be an option that we take. And then let me say to those of you who are here tonight and say, yes, I do believe in Jesus. And yes, I can claim these great promises for my own. Let me say to you that we should never, ever use this teaching to make like a free pass for living life however I want to. And that has been done throughout the history of the church where this teaching has been abused and misused and taken out of context. It's meant to edify. It's meant to strengthen. It's meant to reinforce you. It's meant to assure you. It's meant to call you forward and deeper into a life of faithful obedience to your Heavenly Father. Now, more briefly... The second substantiation. So that's the first and the hardest in some ways in our context. The second is redemption and forgiveness. Verses 7 and 8. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This idea of redemption evokes themes of the great Exodus story. In fact, this idea of election evokes themes of the Exodus story. And what I'll try to say a little bit more about next week is that behind this whole long sentence, Paul is is reframing the story of the Exodus around Jesus the Messiah. Redemption, brought out of bondage and slavery. To sin and to death. For the Israelites, it was to Egypt and to Pharaoh. For us, it's to sin and death that wreak havoc upon our lives in all kinds of ways. And what Paul is saying is you've been redeemed. You've been brought out. You've been brought out of that place where you were under a wicked master and brought into a place of life and fullness and freedom. Thanks be to God. The suffocating powers no longer have authority over you. And you've been redeemed and you've been cleansed. Verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Now some of us might think, well, I don't really feel very much enslaved and I don't feel really very much that I'm unclean or that I've been tainted. But I would actually say that most of us have a deep awareness of something disjointed inside of us. And whether we can, with a lot of detail, describe that in the way that the Christian church has traditionally talked about the reality of sin and brokenness, or whether we just say, you know, something's not right. There's a reality for all of us as humans that we understand something is broken. And what Paul is saying here is that this blessing is about being liberated and cleansed and freed. That this issue of my brokenness has been dealt with in a a decisive way so that now I am okay. Fundamentally and deeply okay. In the Exodus story, they were delivered through the death of, the, of, the, of the, the lamb, the blood was sprinkled on the doors. And Paul here picks it up and says, no, this greater deliverance, not from Pharaoh, but from sin and death, is resulted by the blood of Jesus that's shed on the cross. Because of his death, I go free. Because of his being mocked and spit at and beaten and, and, and tortured, I get cleansed. By his wounds, we have been healed. 
and we go free. The third and final substantiation of this blessing is verses 9 and 10, which is simply this, that God has led us in on the great mystery of the fullness of his plan to unite everything in heaven and on earth in the Messiah. Which means this, that despite the fact that a lot of times we look out around us, we look at the chaos in the Middle East right now, we look at the chaos sometimes in our own lives, and we think, man, is there anything directing this? Is there anyone moving? Does anybody know? Is this all just a bunch of chance and circumstance and whatever happens? Is this just fate? Is this just karma? Is this just something moving us forward? And what Paul declares to us in this text is no. There's a personal God who's at work in the world to bring all things that are discordant and alienated and angry and unforgiven, all things together in the Messiah to unite the world in this new creation that will be beautiful where all the pain and the sorrow and the disjointedness of our current world will be gone. And you, you, me, we're on the inside by God's grace and by his grace alone of this wonderful plan that's working out in mysterious ways that we don't often understand. That's a privilege to get to know that. Think about these small little pockets of people in Western Asia Minor struggling to understand their life, struggling to understand this renewed, this new experience they've had with the living God and the Holy Spirit coming upon them and then thinking, what does it all mean? And Paul's writing a sentence like this and they're saying, wow. All that's going on isn't Rome, isn't Caesar, isn't the peace of Rome. It's actually what's going on in the Messiah. And he's brought us into that and given us a place to walk through that. Let me end by saying this. The conclusion of this opening text, opening eruption of praise that I want us to think about is the fact that God, again, is put back at the center of the world. His glorious grace, we read that in verse 6, this was to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse 12 and verse 14, to the praise of his glory. All that's going on here, all the blessings that have been poured out upon us are to put God back in the center of creation, back in the center of our lives, to lift him up and to exalt him as the God, the wonderful, lavish, generous, beneficial God that he is who pours out blessing upon his people. At the end of the story, in Revelation 22, we read that his servants will worship him as his presence fills the new heavens and the new earth. And that worship of God is what is beginning to be evoked here in this sentence of blessing. His grace in choosing us. His grace in redeeming us. His grace in forgiving us. His grace in letting us into the mystery of his plan for the fullness of time and calling us then to be a part of that mystery as we go forth and walk in a life of holiness and blamelessness worthily of the call upon our lives. Back to my two questions. Yes, God has blessed you. He's blessed you far more than you could ever hope or imagine. And Paul longs for you and for me in this brave new world to know that, to experience that, and to be put back into proper order in that we erupt and overflow in praise of his glorious, lavish grace that he bestows upon us day after day. Amen.